I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. So once you set a science-based target, whether it's through SBTI or not, you're essentially giving yourself rules for the economy and for your business that allow you to engage in a managed transition. And that in climate change is what we're all trying to do, a managed transition where we avoid the worst impacts and manage the worst downsides. So every day, the alphabet soup of climate and ESG-related NGOs seems to thicken. But their respective raison d'etre can seem like a mystery for all but the closest of insiders. So to help unravel the role of each of these organizations in the broader social movement and policy push for urgent climate action, I sat down with Ivan Frischberg, the Chief Sustainability Officer of Amalgamated Bank and a pioneer of climate collaboration for big banks and corporates. Given Ivan's and his bank's historically central and successful role in driving industry collaboration on climate action, Ivan provided key insights into the key state of this evolving landscape. He also dove into the hot topic of divestment versus engagement, and he discussed with us the merits and significance, or lack thereof, of the so-called ESG backlash. Really hope you enjoy this insightful episode. Ivan, thank you for joining us today. We're honored to have you. I know many in the climate community think very highly of your long and successful career in climate advocacy, so I want to start with your background in organizing. You were a campaign manager and senior advisor to several multi-year national campaigns to defend existing environmental regulations and advocate for additional public sector climate action. So could you tell us a little bit about your experiences here and your key lessons learned on both how to move public opinion and translate that into votes for specific pieces of legislation? Yeah, uh, thanks, Chad. It is an honor to be here. I'm a huge fan of of your work of Hannon Armstrong. I feel like you're a company on a mission, which is very much like Amalgamated Bank. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to work with members of your team at a business level, on a policy level. And so it's uh, just great to be here. And it's funny, I have a lot of conversations with folks in the finance community, and they talk about their long track record of working for uh, different financial institutions. And and I can introduce myself by saying I have a long record of losing on climate uh, before joining Amalgamated Bank, but that's really my, my background. My first climate campaign I worked on involved, actually it was at a time when uh, President Clinton had a White House summit on climate change and Al Gore is at the White House climbing onto a ladder to sort of unfold the top of the the, the parts per million chart, which was a precursor of the inconvenient truth. But I, I think in that moment, and particularly actually after an inconvenient truth, I had decided that really I wanted to focus my career and my time on climate change. And so I was doing that as a policy advocate and campaigner and had quickly then sort of got caught up in Waxman Markey and the bills in the Senate to move a federal climate policy. And then the Clean Air Act, which produced the Clean Power Plan and its ultimate demise. And so I, I've been a part of that work, work in the States for many, many years. This has been, I can't even sort of put full words to how significant a moment this was this year when we we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, because as I said, I, I've been losing on climate for, for literally decades. And this is the first time we had sort of a significant groundbreaking victory. And it's historic in size. It is still half of what we need. But for me, it sort of 
gave me clarity around sort of the two things that move legislation. One is win-win, right? When you kind of have a enough sides together with mutual interest to kind of create a win-win opportunity. And I think that was clearly the case here with the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Where you have labor and jobs and climate and sort of economic interests all coming together with a common approach. The other is sort of Congress acts in particular when there's a crisis, right? So you think about the last financial crisis and what they did around Dodd-Frank or, you know, that they're just, they're always better in a crisis. The problem with climate change is that when we really act in crisis at the level that we're going to see it in terms of the climate impacts, it's going to be at the point where our actions are going to be pretty inadequate. And the win-win solutions are great, but they don't necessarily take into account the kind of physics and the needs of a changing climate. And so, you know, as I say, this was a historic victory. It's half of what we need here in the U.S., but that's where we're kind of caught between is sort of acting in crisis or finding win-win solutions and hoping that it all cobbles together to get, particularly for the United States, the leadership that we need to help move the rest of the world at the pace that we need it. Yeah, absolutely. So then eventually after your time in climate advocacy, you found your way to Amalgamated Bank, which builds itself as America's socially responsible bank. Tell us why you joined Amalgamated and a little bit about the bank's history and mission, which I think is is really interesting. First joining Amalgamated was sort of a crazy idea. I mean, I, I had actually gotten to know some of the leadership of Amalgamated through my work with the Obama team at, at Organizing for Action. And I think before I even really knew about the bank or its existence, even though I had received paychecks <laughs> courtesy of Amalgamated Bank, you know, I, I never saw a piece of paper because it just went straight into my bank account. But I worked for a bunch of places that were banking with Amalgamated and never really knew about it. And a friend of mine called up and said, I got a crazy idea. And it sounded crazy enough to be interesting, which is come work at a bank, help us figure out sustainability and do sustainability banking. And it seemed like the right move at the right time. And we were coming to the end of the Obama administration and all the progress that had been made there. It was a time when we were going to be focused on implementation. I had just been spending a bunch of time with the Obama campaign operation, thinking about how to take all of that infrastructure and turn it towards climate. And so now it was the opportunity to think about a bank and what, how it interacted with climate change. And as you're saying, Amalgamated really is a unique institution. We're almost 100 years old. We were started by a labor union, immigrant workers who'd come to this country to fight for a better world for their families, and they couldn't get access to banking. They needed access to banking to provide for their families, to support families back overseas. And so they created a bank. They could do that back then. And out of that, we sort of had this 100-year institution that was formed on a mission to help people create a better world for, for their families and their communities. And, and that is still the, the driving force at the bank. Even though we're a publicly traded bank, we're a public benefit corporation. So that mission is built into our, our corporate charter. Our clients, our staff, our board, uh, our investors are fully aligned around that mission and also see it as not just doing the right thing, but actually key to our success as, as a business. And like an increasing number of retail investors and financial institutions, Amalgamated believes that your money should be able, at least, to align with your values. 
So how do you attempt to realize this in practice? Could you talk about a few of your programs? The biggest impact that a bank has is in its balance sheet lending and investment, right? So this is the money, the assets that we have and where we put that out the door. And so we have, we kind of quantify all of our assets in terms of their impact sectors. We have screens to make sure that we're doing things that we don't think are, what is our view of sort of harmful or bad, but we, I think most importantly, are focused on how we can have positive impact. And so now almost two thirds of our portfolio is what we consider some sort of high impact that includes climate solutions. It includes affordable housing, community and economic development, finance for our client sectors like labor unions or political campaigns. And so we've been able to kind of build products and relationship services that really support our clients. And and that's the other place where we really see our impact. It is through our clients, which I would include Hannon Armstrong in that context as well. We work with clean energy companies, with investment firms, with labor unions, with nonprofit organizations, with with incredible institutions in all sorts of different sectors that are making the world a better place. And we work to be the bank that is right for them to help empower them. And so that's that's the other sort of general area where we have impact. And you touched a little bit on this in your previous response, but as you know, within the ESG community, both on the investor side and the corporate side, there is increasingly hot debate regarding divestment versus engagement. And very simply, divestment side argues that not investing in certain asset classes, you know, most recently that's fossil fuels, but traditionally, you know, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, not investing in these asset classes is the right thing to do. And it can raise the cost of capital to such firms, thereby making those sectors ultimately less profitable. But buttressed by some recent academic studies, the engagement side of this argument contends that divestment does little to alter a firm's cost of capital, while engagement can drive meaningful change at the corporate level. And my understanding is that Amalgamated engages to an extent in, in both approaches. You have negative investment screens whereby you do not lend to certain industries at all, but you also have a very active engagement program, as you were alluding to earlier, whereby you engage not only with shareholders and stakeholders, but also corporates. And you've achieved some significant successes in this regard. So tell us a little bit more about your philosophy on this, divestment versus engagement, and the outcomes you've achieved. Sure. And you're right. We do both. Uh, we do both. And I think we found impact in both. Let me take a step back because I think the, the thing that kind of brings all of this together is risk. Right. And that is the that's a pillar of what banking theory and policy and regulation is, is all founded around is, is risk management. Right. That we have to be good stewards for our depositors money. We're thinking about risk. And so we're now a roughly eight billion dollar bank and the world is dominated by one, two, three trillion dollar banks. Right. And so we had to think about you know, how we protect our business and our clients from systemic risks. That I think is where you have to begin these sort of ESG or engagement divestment conversations is really an understanding of systemic risk. Because not every risk that you're going to see is about saying, okay, what's the financial revenue flow to a company going to be? And can we kind of manage that over time? And does that make for a good loan? Uh, some of these systemic risks can have a profound impact on the bottom lines of our business over time. Climate change, racial, economic inequality, even what's happening with our democracy, right? There is no doubt that capitalism cannot function 
without some sort of rules of society and democracy being held together. So when it comes down to, you know, divestment or engagement, there's some nuances to focus on that kind of help take some of the hot air out of the balloon and think about how you respond in each instance. The first is this position on risk, right? Are you a long-term investor? So are you thinking about managing a pension investment over time where you know you're going to be incredibly diversified and you're not looking at one company, but you're looking at how the whole thing works? And so you have an obligation from a risk perspective to be really focused on your ability to manage systemic risk, to avoid systemic risk, and to be able to deliver for pension holders in 10, 20, 30 years. You know, if you're a lender, as I just described, that's a shorter window of risk. But a lot of investors are individuals, right? And we produce products for them. But think about the customer who's a parent. It's shocking in this country right now. Gun violence is the leading cause of death for children. The number one children in this, the most developed, prosperous economy in the world, die is from gun violence. And I saw the the New York Times infographic today that increasingly it's it's black and brown children as well that are the victims of that gun violence. And, and that's just terrible. Yeah. So if you're a parent and you're an investor, who's to tell you that you have to include gun companies in your diversified holdings of stock? No, you absolutely get to divest. You have your own calculation of risk, just as a pension asset manager or a lender or a big money center bank does. Everybody has their own view of risk. And so that's the first thing. You have to understand the entity that's making the investment, what's their view on risk. And in that case, though, the risk associated with investing in gun manufacturers or distributors is that there will be you know, lawsuits or legislation that would ultimately impede their business model going forward. Is that specifically the risk that you're referring to? No, I think it's a moral hazard if you're that parent. Yeah. And you're just thinking, you know, if you, <laughs> it's not a dollars and cents balance sheet thing. It's a statement of position and you're thinking about your risks and your return and what you want to do with your money. You get to make those decisions. That That is essentially the free market. Those who are attacking ESG right now sort of forgot a lot of that. But yeah. the second sort of nuance is, and this is the risk you're getting at, is around, for example, fossil fuels. We know that for most uses in society, fossil fuels are on their way out, and it's only a matter of timing. So that question, the second question is timing. So I can divest everything today, or I can start to move myself out of a position, and I can anticipate risk and return in the market. And so if you think about you know, investment as a, as a time-bound decision, that sort of changes the flavor of that decision. The third thing is to think about technologies and not companies. And this is where divestment often comes down and engagement is done at a company level. But really, we should be thinking about technologies, right? So if you're an energy company, the question is, are you in coal or not? Or are you in oil and gas? And are you making a transition out of those? And you know, and maybe as an investor, you want to be in certain types of technologies, but maybe different companies start off in one place and they're transitioning out. But you know, we have to, I think, have the ability as lenders and investors to think about the use of funds and about technology and not just companies. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions for over 30 years. 
To learn more about our climate positive journey, please visit hannonarmstrong.com. So staying on that climate theme in an area where Amalgamated has really shown strong leadership, last year you published your net zero climate targets, which were validated by the Science-Based Target Initiative, or SBTI, and you became the first U.S. bank to do so. So tell us about the target itself. You know, what is it, the importance of the SBTI organization, and why getting the banking sector in particular behind net zero and SBTI is so important? Sure. The first thing about target setting is that it's actually an incredibly important guide to managing all of that risk that we were just talking about. So once you set a science-based target, whether it's through SBTI or not, you're essentially giving yourself rules for the economy and for your business that allow you to engage in a managed transition. And that in climate change is what we're all trying to do, a managed transition where we avoid the worst impacts and manage the worst downsides. And so having science-based targets allows you to kind of follow a particular path, right? So we have a, a 2045 net zero target, but we didn't start with that number. We started with scenarios for each of our different asset classes. We started with an accounting of where our emissions were within our loan and investment portfolio. And we started to look at the IEA targets or scenarios uh, going forward. We started to look at the different jurisdictions we were in. And we sort of, we created targets by asset class that kind of made sense to where the, we thought the economy needed to go, where it would go, what we could control, and put that all together to a 2045 target. The reason that SBTI in, in particular is important is that it's that third-party validation. So I think one of the things that it's we know is bad in a market is just sort of chaotic apples to oranges to cherries to blueberries type of information that you can't sort of put together and rationalize. And so we don't expect every investor to get under the hood of our climate targets, but we do expect people to look for some level of assurance that our targets are real and meaningful, that they're aligned with science and, and that we're kind of following the right roadmap. And so that's where SBTI really is that gold standard for doing that. You now, you've also personally played a role in co-founding and or building other international industrial partnerships or coalitions, including the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, or PCAF, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, or NBZA, and the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS. Generally, why are these organizations necessary to drive corporate climate action? I mean, beyond just creating a bigger, richer alphabet soup. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, the beginning for me goes back to us being an $8 billion bank. And honestly, when we started this journey, we were at a $3.5 billion bank. But we, to accomplish our goals and with respect to climate, we the whole financial community needs to move. And to do that, there's sort of a set of basic steps. You you have to be able to measure your carbon footprint or your financed emissions if you're in the finance sector. And so that comes through the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, PCAF. Then you need to be able to set targets. So that comes through SBTI or the Net Zero Banking Alliance. You know, then you can do the management work, right? But you you need those sort of systems to be able to do that management work. And so when we started our journey and we're thinking about how do we measure what's in our portfolio, 
there really wasn't a commonly agreed to way to do that. And so we discovered through the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, some Dutch banks that had actually done this. It had been launched as a part of the Paris Climate Agreement, and they had this sort of accounting system. And it was just a basically a way for every asset class to go through and, and understand what the emissions are that were attributable to the finance that you were doing. And so that gave you an absolute emissions number. It allowed you then to get it to an emissions intensity number. And so we said, okay, we want to do this, but we can't just do it on our own and know everybody else uses a different thing or nobody uses a thing at all. And so we really sought to both do it, but make sure we were doing it in a collaborative way. And we started with North America, built a team of values-based banks to kind of produce the first North American standard, and then at the same time launched the global PCAF standard. And so when we launched the intention, it was about $3.5 trillion of assets that were committed to this methodology. And now it's over $80 trillion, and it covers credit unions to BlackRock. I mean, it is just now this is the standard that's incorporated both into regulation and into voluntary standards across the board in the finance sector. Yeah, definitely great successes with these organizations and setting standards and building industry coalitions. Are there any other actions either these specific organizations or governments can take to add more teeth? Because these are all voluntary standards and commitments, really. So is there anything else that can be done either at the institutional level or the governmental policy level that would would help add some teeth to these ambitious and and, and generally well-intentioned commitments that member institutions are making as part of these pledges and organizations? All of these things. So PCAF or the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which I actually think is sort of one of the most transformative things that is happening in the banking space right now. Everybody hates it. The banks, I think, kind of hate it. The activists hate it. The Everybody just grumbles about it. But the reality is, setting aside China, you have most of the world's banking assets focused on a common goal with common rule sets. They can figure out how to implement it their own way, but we're all singing off the same song sheet. And we all play our different parts, our different harmonies and melodies, whatever, but we're kind of working off the same thing. And, and that, I think, is incredibly powerful, especially because through GFANS, it's connected to the work that's happening in the asset ownership, asset management, insurance spaces. And so for government to act, whether it's the SEC or other regulatory bodies, you know, to, to take on things like, you know, TCFD and turning them into regulation you need widespread industry adoption. So you couldn't ever go walk in as a policymaker and say, we're going to pass a law to do stress testing, scenario planning, measurement, target setting. And, you know, like we're going to sort of, we're going to by force bring order to this. You need ultimately a lot of that sort of regulatory authority and structure around it, but you need these voluntary initiatives to to really develop the space, show what's possible and it can be implemented to get to that point. And I think our work building these voluntary mechanisms is what's making regulatory action possible. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And kudos to all of you for all your good work there. Turning to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, obviously a really big, important space that's developed over the last few years. And I know Amalgamated has made some recent big strides as it relates to DEI. Tell us about some of your recent successes and how specifically you've achieved these results. 
I think first, it's sort of an intentionality. You have to kind of dedicate yourself to do it. And like everything else in business, you kind of have to have a thoughtful <laughs> data-based approach to kind of developing a plan, setting targets, and implementing and managing that. And so I would say over the last several years, that that's what we've been doing. And year over year, our results in terms of diversity of, of our teams, it gets stronger and stronger. We are now majority minority organization across the board. Our board is incredibly diverse. Our challenge, if you go back a couple of years ago, is really our kind of senior management or middle management. That has changed dramatically. And when we put out our CSR report next year, you're going to see some really incredible improvement in that in that space. And so I think I'm very proud of what we've done. Where it comes from is, as I say, it's that process, but it's also from our leadership. Like our board is very intentional in this. I think it, it's no surprise. We we have an amazing CEO and president, Priscilla Sims Brown. She is a black woman with Ethiopian roots and heritage. And she brings with her a insight and commitment to this that has helped shape the company. So I think, you know, incredible credit to her, to our board, which is chaired by a woman. So we're the only bank that have both a woman CEO and a woman chair of the board. And, and so that allows us to do a lot of things and make a lot of progress. So we're, we're excited to show that progress that we've made. Excellent. Yeah. Looking forward to your upcoming impact CSR report. So I want to turn now to some recent attacks on ESG or environmental social governance more broadly. As ESG has become more popular among both investors, for instance, a Morningstar survey recently found that 85% of the 500 largest global asset owners consider ESG factors to be material to their investment policy decisions. And important to companies, you know, we have a third of the world's largest companies by revenue that's that have committed to net zero by 2050. So as ESG has become more popular across the free market, uh, attacks against it have been lobbed from all sides. From the center and the left, many argue that companies and investors are making claims about their climate and other ESG performance that are either not accurate and or they're setting net zero or other targets that just aren't achievable. And, and from the right, particularly here in the U.S., conservative climate denialist groups have driven successful efforts at the state level to limit the ability of some financial institutions to consider ESG, especially climate factors, in their decision-making processes. And then seemingly in response, Vanguard, which is the second largest asset manager in the world, withdrew from the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative very recently, which aims to encourage companies to reach net zero targets. So in your view, how substantive are these attacks on ESG and how impactful have they been so far? And, and how would you expect the impact to be going forward? The first thing is to acknowledge this is a really big topic and it's really complicated and easy to conflate different things. So ESG is really the world of risk and it's about risk management and risk factors in, in investment making. And so that is different than impact and corporate social responsibility and, and those things intersect, but they're also very different. Okay. And so there's ESG that companies wanted rules and data that they want to work with to mitigate risk. There's also ESG that is turned into kind of a product set, even though this has been only, you know, it's been around for just pretty recently in, in terms of the overall investing world, but it has become central for a lot of different complicated reasons. So 
what happens in this current environment is you, you have kind of a natural body of people who are saying, you know, this ESG data is sort of, it's nice, it's great for risk, but it's actually not changing the world. And that was part of what we wanted to do. And that's actually part of the amalgamated heritage, right? One of the, the first founders of sort of impact funds was somebody who worked at Amalgamated Bank and he had been chased out of the treasury department by the McCarthy witch hunts and came to the bank and said, okay, we're going to create some investment products that are aligned to the values that we want. And, you know, and those were impact funds. Now they, then they get called ESG funds, but there's a critique of all that saying we're not delivering. And this would be the, I, to simplify the European critique, which is it leads to greenwashing and it's not, it's just about protecting investors. It's not really about impact. And so that creates some tension. That is a healthy tension that we could all work to solve. The problem that's really going on in the U.S. political context is policymakers on behalf of a set of very narrow special interests who perceive themselves maybe accurately as losers in the world of impact and ESG are saying, wait a second, we're going to try to stop the rules of the market. We're going to try to stop information being used and we're going to force you to do the things that you don't want to do. And that is principally about fossil fuels. And if you use that Vanguard, you know, their departure from the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance is probably one of the clearest examples where they had voted to support pretty modest ESG initiatives on, you know, shareholder resolutions around managing climate risk. And a complaint was filed with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to say Vanguard should lose its ability to invest in utility companies because it's trying to manage their climate risk. And they they operate under that license as an investor, you know, to be able to do that. And so it was a, it was a threat to their business. And can you imagine if they'd been successful, if all of a sudden State Street, BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity all had to pull out of the utility sector as, as asset managers? Would have been devastating, right? And so this was all done to protect fossil fuel interests. And it, as we saw, there was a hearing in Texas this week. It's all pretty transparently become another form of climate denial, which is, you know, it's sort of taken climate denial and moved it into a, a denial of capitalism. Yeah. And one thing I also want to clarify, a lot of these fossil fuel interests, so to speak, are, are very wealthy, the owners and the managers of these companies. And, and actually, a lot of the workers, some of whom may be unionized or are just, you know, working class folks are actually hurt by these companies with, with you know, lack of retirement benefits and without a transition for a, a process uh, and for jobs going forward. So I just want to add that as well. And so kind of staying on this topic, the International Sustainability Standards Board, or ISSB, which was established over the last year or two with the mandate of creating global standardized sustainability-related financial reporting metrics. I wanted your thoughts on the necessity of the ISSB and its mission. It's really important. This is the kind of harmonization of standards. Finance is global at this point, and you know, work investments are global. And so working to a kind of comparable set of rules and, and expectations for investors is really important to the formation of capital, the management of risk. And so that is where, you know, their efforts to create a kind of common baseline for sustainability disclosures is, is really, really important. And I think it is the thing if you 
you think about the SEC rules, which are in, I think, what I would argue kind of contribute, although not directly connected to ISSB, all it is is basically putting carbon accounting, the greenhouse gas protocol, and TCFD together, two broadly accepted phenomena in the in the corporate sector for disclosures, and creating a set of rules there that are beneficial to investors. And ISSB just does the same without the same sort of regulatory mechanisms, but it's just sort of saying, yeah, we're going to create a kind of commonality of standards so that when everybody is doing this, if they're working, again, to the same set of rules, you have more comparable and useful outcomes. Well, thank you, Ivan. We're almost done. But first, we have the hot seat. And we ask for your immediate quick thoughts to the following statements. The hardest decision I've ever made is? Maybe it was to join Amalgamated Bank. I mean, I confess coming in here, I I don't really I didn't balance my checkbook. I didn't know that you could make a deposit through your phone or anything like this. So joining a bank was a bold, bold <laughs> leap into this space. And now I, I don't often believe it, but many of my colleagues who spent their whole career in banks say, oh yeah, you're a banker. <laughs> well, definitely a great decision. And you've done a great job. One thing I've changed my mind on is... I feel almost like everything. It's an evo- everything is an evolution. And I think, you know, there's a lot of policies that we advocate for and put into place that stand the test of time only for so long. And so I, I feel like this, almost everything, if you don't treat it as sort of living and breathing and as an evolution for the ability to change your mind, then you're going to end up on the rocks. Yeah. The person I've learned the most from is... Well, I don't know if this is the most, but I'll I'll give it as a great example. So before I was focused on climate, I was a a lobbyist in the higher education space. So I worked on the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. I was advocating on behalf of students. And it's an incredibly complex space. And students had a very, because we organized it, a pretty outsized role in deciding what the interest rate was on student loans or what the subsidy structure for the lending industry was going to be. This is before we had direct lending. And there was somebody who I consider a dear friend, uh, Barmak Nasirian, who was an executive at one of the school associations lobbying for college presidents. But he was brilliant and kind of committed to what made sense in policy and to not sugarcoating things or just doing what an association would want to do. And he was, I think, as a junior lobbyist, one of the kind of true mentors of of helping me understand like how to approach policymaking and how to do the right thing. And so I just, I, you know, we spent many, many evenings sitting around with a group of folks over bottles of wine and bowls of French fries, uh, learning (laughs) how to do this better. Wow. That's a great example. If I had to do it all over again, I would. I would have studied harder in school. (laughs) And yet you turned out all right. I think. (laughs) Don't tell my kids. (laughs) (laughs) When I need to recharge, I. I go to the mountains. I just love, I love being outside. I particularly love being around mountains. Which ones? You know, all of them. I've spent a bunch of time in the Rockies. I feel like in the Southwest, but I also now spend a lot of time out in West Virginia. And I just feel myself physically transforming somewhere between 
I-66 and 81 and over the hills into West Virginia, it, it, everything starts to change. The key ingredient to my productivity is? I'll, I'll let you know when I find it. <laughs> <laughs> you're in all these organizations, you're a board member, you do a lot. <laughs> I am productive. I'm not organized, <laughs> although I okay. should be. But it um, maybe the the key ingredient is just taking on more than I can manage. So even if I'm, I'm dropping a few balls here and there, there's enough in the air that something's happening. Yeah, you can keep juggling. <laughs> I want my kids to know. I think the most important thing with kids always is that they know you love them. Parenting is hard. You have to be a parent. You have to teach them say no to things, do you know, there's just confront conflict, you have to create opportunities, you all of that. And it and it it doesn't come without real tests. Uh, but at the core of it, if if they know you love them, it's great. The most insightful book or article I've read recently is not so recently, but the uninhabitable earth was uh i think in the in a climate space for me again one of those moments where it's an incredibly depressing book but yeah. really thought provoking and it produces a certain amount of grief which i think a lot of folks who spend their time on climate are familiar with but i think it kind of helps you to the other side to find a way beyond grief because i think we should be mortified by what's happening and what's going to happen but we it, it helps you in some way to get beyond that to really focus on what we can do and just doing you know making the difference we can make every day and in that vein to me climate positive means ah climate positive means first of all my brain is taken off into like too many meetings of climate accounting to <laughs> <laughs> think about that from an arcane perspective. But uh, first off, Climate Positive is it's an incredible podcast and encourage everybody to subscribe. But Good answer. Climate, climate Positive is just got to be. It's just doing the thing that you can do. To make a difference. Excellent. Well, this has been really great, Ivan. Thank you so much for joining us. We got into a lot of great topics and uh, learned a lot myself. So appreciate your time and uh, look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And thank you for everything that Hannon Armstrong is, is doing. I think we need, we need more of this. You are what Climate Positive is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify, which really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at HannonArmstrong.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.